part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Well, it is great to see you this morning. If you have your Bibles, open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We're in a series right now about life lessons that uh, every kid needs to, to learn. And uh, I, I'm kind of convinced that somewhere in life we learn these, sometimes a little bit too late, but sometimes we uh, learn them from the School of Hard Knocks. Anybody ever attend the School of Hard Knocks? Yeah, yeah. And, and so you kind of learn these lessons, but, uh, you know, the kind of the thesis here, the premise is, isn't it better to learn these lessons when you're 8 or 9, if not even earlier, than 28 or 29 or 48 or 49? And they're just life lessons, they're practical truths, and yet we see that there's a way to deal with each one of these spiritually. Well, you know, in preparing for the lesson and for the sermon this week, I had a lot of different thoughts, and, and one just stood out in my mind. I, I can remember it like it was just almost yesterday. And it was years ago, but it was vivid in my mind because uh, my daughters, I have two daughters, and uh, I was helping one with, uh, Carly and I were assisting, you know, with their projects. And, and I don't know if your kids have ever done those kind of projects, but sometimes they tell you a week beforehand. Other times they tell you the night before. And so you're running off to Walmart or wherever to get the supplies, you're putting it together. Well, this is one of those times that, you know, it wasn't with, you know, the night before, but we had kind of you know, worked on this, provided everything. They did all the work, and uh, I, I thought we had done a really good job. And uh, turned it in, and it was about a week later, we got a B minus. And I remember my frustration of going, I cannot believe that we got a B minus. That's why dealing with failure is a really hard thing for parents, because number one, we love our kids, we want them to succeed. Number two, we have a vested interest. Not just when we're helping them with a project that it's a reflection on ourselves, but how our children do really is pridefully. I'm not saying that that's the greatest motivation, but we do take some pride in how our children do. I would love for it to be 100% pure that all of my desire for my children to succeed in life and have all this great, wonderful life is all just pure for their sake alone. And I would say that most of it is motivated by that. But guys, let's be honest. If you're a parent, you're a grandparent, there is that reflection of your children and how they do that it kind of comes back to you, especially if they fail. And so this morning, I want you to listen because failure is a natural part of life. We're going to see that biblically. And we will deal with failure. Our kids will deal with failure and we will teach them about failure. But are we going to teach them biblically? Are we going to really teach them biblically how to deal with this? And so this morning we're going to go to the Word of God. We're going to see that uh, as much as we want our kid to make every team, be the star of the show, get the lead part, uh, all of our children's dreams fulfilled, uh, the, the problem is there can only be one quarterback. There can only be a couple wide receivers. There can only be a couple guys that are going to be rotating in the backfield. There can only be that one that gets the speaking part in the school play. And, and sometimes that's a really tough lesson to learn. We're kind of in a society right now, and, and people feel different ways. Uh, I'm not here to say one way or the other. I, I personally don't like the whole everybody gets a trophy kind of thing. It just doesn't. I, I don't think it really lines up biblically, to be real honest with you. I understand that we kind of want to, to save, you know, the feelings of, of different ones. But have you found as an adult or as a grandparent that that's how life is? That no matter whether you get on the job at 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock, or you stroll in about 1130, that they say, here is your trophy for the day. 
Life's not that way. There's kind of a hard place out there that performance and how you do things in life really does play a factor in how the world reacts. Well, here's the the hard part, guys. How do we live in this world that very much is performance-oriented and yet still stay biblical in the way that we deal with our successes and our failures? How do we do this? And especially how do we teach our kids these important lessons to do it scripturally and biblically? I mean, we can teach them the school of hard knocks. We really can. And it's one of those things, I mean, that's how I was taught. My dad did not teach me a lot of spiritual things, but he taught me a whole bunch about real life. And I'm forever grateful for that. And yet, as I got older, I began to say, well, you know, the Bible kind of has a little bit of a different slant on this. Some of those truths are still there. And yet, here's, you know, what the Bible says. So here's what we're going to do this morning. Face the reality that there will be times of failing in our child's life. Some people don't even like that word failing, okay? I'm going to use it very um, broad today. You know, setbacks in life. Some of their own doing. They made their own choices. We saw last week, choices have consequences. Sometimes, as we just sang the song, sometimes it rains on this person. You know, God, he gives and he takes away. And God said that up front. That's not something he tries to slide in the back door. He says it rains on the just and the unjust. In other words, this world, because it's a fallen world and we're fallen people in this world, not everything always happens good to good people. Not just bad things happen to bad people. We've been there before when bad people, quote-unquote bad people, kind of succeeded. They got the raise. They got the job. You, you didn't. I mean, there's a fallacy in that. You know, my, in my theology, there's a fallacy of this good people thing. Anyway, none of us are good people. The Bible says very quickly that we have all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. And so when we try to build that kind of a case, we're not building it on the biblical record. We're kind of building it just in our own comparison. You know, that this guy is a little bit better than that guy. So it shows us that in this world that we're going to make, we're going to make these judgments, but are we dealing, it, dealing with it and, and providing that information scripturally? That, that's my desire, is that we just don't pr- produce a next generation of functional adults and people that can be good moms and dads, but that we have moms and dads, husbands and wives in this next generation. They're going to look to God's word and they're going to say, you know, hey, this is what society says. Here's even what my heart kind of says. But here's what the scripture says. And so the scripture, I'm going to pray to God that the scripture will realign my heart and my mind to think like Christ. And the Bible says to take every thought and make it what? Captive to Christ. And that's our desire is to live that kind of life. I, you know, I want my kid to get the A+. Plus. I would not for, not for my child to be the one that is the star of the show. And if she desires that she wants to be Annie in the musical production, Annie, I want her to do that, whether she can sing a lick or not. That's a parent's heart. We need to line that heart up scripturally so that we are providing a foundation, not only for today, but for tomorrow for our kids. So with that in mind, let us pray as parents, as grandparents today, maybe parents-to-be, let us pray that God will speak to us. Because there's going to be some things today that, that are said that, that you might find kind of grain against you. You say, well, you know, that's okay. Maybe the Bible says that, but I still want my child to be the star. I, I get that. I really do get that as a parent. 
Let's pray that God would speak to our hearts, write on his truth on our hearts this morning. Father, we give you our minds, our hearts. Father, how many times did Christ say over and over again, let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. And that's our desire this morning, Father. This thing called parenting, Father, we do it. It is motivated by love. And yet, Father, we agree that there's probably a little bit of pride in there and there's a little bit of that reflection of how our children do reflects back on us. So will you give us the purity of mind and thought And Father, as we entertain the scripture this morning, as we delve into this word that you have for us this morning, that Father, we would be able to see your truth and that truth would set us free. Free from a culture that might say, hey, everybody deserves a trophy. Free from a culture that says you're only good if you win. Father, free from all those things, but that we would find our truth in your word and in your truth this morning. Father, this is our prayer. So we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So the, this morning we're going to do those two things. Open your Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 again. This, uh, I always want to tell you the context. If we're not doing our book-by-book book study, like in James, we're taking a short kind of relief from, from James. So if we're not going verse-by-verse, verse, I always want you to at least know the context of the verse that we are going through so that we don't kind of just cherry-pick you know, a couple things and a couple words that may line up to what we're trying to achieve. What's going on in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthians, and uh, he's really kind of under attack. There are some people called the Judaizers that are starting to attack Paul. They are saying, Paul, uh, are you sure you're an apostle? We pretty much saw you trying to stamp out Christianity. What about this change in your life? And so Paul came upon a question not only within the Christian church, but even those outside the church. And there's a lot of people that were just kind of saying, okay, where's your accreditation, Paul? What really makes you apostle? How do we know that you're the real deal? And so as we get to chapter 12, Paul kind of validates that he's the real deal by saying that God had given him a vision and that he had been taken up to heavens. Whether that was a vision, whether that was something he just dreamt, whether he really was taken, we don't know. And yet what we see is that Paul was kind of unfolded before Paul with some mysteries and some things. And so he uses that as a substantiation. And he comes and he says, you know, this could really give me the apostolic big head. You know, you know you're asking, am I, am I a real apostle? And he said, man, you know, I, I, I've seen the Lord. Because part of this vision is he saw Christ. That's a pretty big deal. And so he comes back and he said, man, this is something I could easily boast about. And I only tell you this because, you know, I'm trying to substantiate that God has called me. And so he's making that case. And this follows right afterwards, that he had a vision of Christ. He saw these great things. Uh, We see that in verse 3 and 4. Can we go to, yeah, verse 3 and 4 there. And I know that this man, he even doesn't even refer to himself. (laughs) He said, "I, I know that this man was called up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body. I don't know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told which man may not utter. That's what happened to Paul. He's talking in, in, as if it's somebody else, but he's talking about himself, and he comes back and substantiates that in, in the later verses. But Paul gives a reality of life here, that when there's great highs, have you noticed that sometimes there's also great lows? Any Bulldog fans here this morning? I mean, have you ever been in the range of emotions in 10 to 12 minutes as yesterday? 
you know, utter disgust. Oh, we're going to lose. We let them back in the ball game. Utter delight. Oh, man, this new quarterback, he's going to be a legend to that last play and going, what just happened? Up, down, up, down. Now, now for you that are parents and grandparents, because if you're grandparents, obviously you were parents also, it's one of those things. Could, could you agree that parenting is a lot like that? That there's extreme highs. I mean, there's times you just go, that's my boy. Yeah. And then there's other times going, I don't know where he came from. He was left at the front door. We do, he's not ours by blood. You know? And there's times that, you know, you're just going, this could not be my child. Carly, it's your daughter, not mine. No, this is your side of the family. And, and so we know that parenting kind of does this highs and lows. And that's what Paul's experienced. He's had highs and lows. And he, right after he talks about this vision of Christ, he starts talking about this thorn in the flesh. Now, this thorn in the flesh, we don't know what it is. If somebody tells you they know exactly what it is, they don't. People have speculated for years what this was, this ailment, this trouble that Paul had. I certainly have my theory on what it could have been, but we're never told. But here Paul talks about this great high of seeing Christ. And then he starts talking about, but you know, there's one thing that I have had in my life that is a thorn in the flesh. It's a pain in my life. And I've prayed three times and God will not take it away. Look what he says. 2 Corinthians 12, 7. So to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of this revelation, a thorn in the flesh, or the thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. What we begin to see here is that in the midst of all the glorious things that God did in Paul's life, God did allow, I'm not saying he caused it, but certainly had purpose in it, and, and Paul even says that. Now, he kind of attributes this to Satan. He said, this is not a, in a way, this isn't a good thing, but God has allowed this to be in my life for a purpose. I want us to, to, to entertain something so spiritual, and, and yet there is kind of a, a question that you're going to have to decide in your life to kind of give us a foundation to, to work from. It involves two questions this morning. We sing a song that illustrates this truth, Good, Good Father. How many of you this morning, you don't have to raise your hand, but just in your heart and your mind, do you really 100% agree that our Heavenly Father is a good, good Father? Do you have an answer to that? Okay. How many of you believe that God in all of his might and all of his power and all of his wisdom is able, if he so desired, to take every encumbrance, every ailment, every affliction in our life away, if he so desired? Do you believe that you serve a God like that? If you've answered yes to both of those questions, I I want you to understand what we have here. We have a God who is a good, good father. He has the ability to take away pain from our life. And yet at the same time, do any of you have a life absent from pain, either of your own causing or just because you exist in a fallen person in a fallen world. Do you understand the premise of those two questions? Because it's very important, not so much philosophically, even though it's kind of a philosophical thing, it's important for us scripturally to understand that about this God that we serve, that he is a good, good father. And he's not just a good father when it's sunshine 
It's not, he's not just a good, good father when everything is rosy in our lives. When the world seemingly is falling apart, whether our own choices are, are because of some other choices that other people made in our life, he's still a good, good father. When we begin to understand that, then we can kind of back off and begin to say, okay, God, what do I need to know about failure? Because if we see failure as only God's disapproval, and, and sometimes failure comes because we have sinned, and as we saw last week, choices, consequences. So let's not, un- let's not erase what we established last week, or what, better yet, the Bible established last week. But at the same time, the same Bible says it rains on the just and the unjust. We, we just sing this morning, he gives and he takes away. He's the same God. The Bible says there is no shadow of turning. And God's not moody. How many of you would love, if, if you're married and your spouse is here, would love, well, that's a loaded question. I was going to say, would love to, to live with a spouse that wasn't moody. Raise your hand. You know that you would. Yeah. I mean, wouldn't you just love steady Eddie? Man, same every day. And we're hoping that that same is always up. Okay, it's always the positive. Man, we're up, we're down, we're here, we're there, we're, we're all over the place. God is not like that. God is not like that. There's never a day that he is unjust. There's never a day that he is unloving. There's never a day that God gets in a mood and says, you know, I'm just, uh, man, I'm going to let the world have it today. He may bring about judgment, but it does, his personality has changed. His mood does not change. He is holy. He is just. He is loving. When we understand that, that gives us a basis to be able to start to go into kind of this whole question, okay, if God is a good, good father and he has the ability, certainly the power, the might to take away every encumbrance, hindrance, failure, difficulty in our life, then why doesn't he? There has to be an answer to that question. And we begin to see that answer in this scripture. Again, let's go to verse 7 because Paul tells us what he believes was the purpose of this story. And he says, so to keep me from becoming what? Conceited. He said, I, I have seen Christ. I've had this vision. Whether it's in the body or not, I don't know. But he said, I've seen Christ. And he said, man, I, I walk the streets and a lot of other people haven't seen Christ in that same form or fashion. I mean, it would be really easy to say, man, I am really that special. And he says, to keep me from being con- uh, conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of this revelation, a thorn was given me in the flesh. He, he ties this difficulty, whatever this thorn is, whether it was a spiritual affliction, whether it was a mental thing, I still think that very much it could have been uh, a, a mental thing. I, I still think that there were times that Paul would be preaching in the synagogue and on his mission trips and different places, and he would go, and, and that there might some, be somebody that, that really did come up after this service and say, hey, Pastor Paul, that was great. Man, what a good word. I, I, I wish my dad would have been here, but you know, you killed him several years ago, or at least you led that crusade against him. I mean, do you think? I mean, the Middle East at that time, guys, wasn't as big as we think. It wasn't this metropolis of just billions of people. It, it was a lot smaller than you think. 
Do you not think that in all the travels of Paul's, he didn't come up, he didn't come upon somebody? And I'm not saying that's what the thorn in the flesh was, but can you imagine if that was you? That even though you have a converted mind and heart, your life is totally changed by Christ. That there's still some things in the past that you have to live with, kind of. Anybody relate to that here? I know that God has made me a new creation. I know all things are new in Christ, and yet I think back. In my last church, I knew of about three or four ladies that uh, early in their life had, had, had taken a child, aborted a child. And if I was ever going to preach on that, I said, you know, look, I, I just want you to know. Because they were living victorious Christian lives. And yet, guys, every sin has cost, everything has hard places in our hearts and our minds. But I've never seen a wallop that Satan does like that. And I just wanted to know. I just wanted to know, look, Christ loves you. I know you're walking with Christ now. You are a brand new creation. But I just want you to know, because I didn't want you to be blindsided tomorrow, because we're going to address this with God's truth. But I just want you to know. And sometimes they would choose to be there, and sometimes they wouldn't. Folks, God tells us that there is victory in following him. And at the same time, we have to deal with this past. And I don't know what Paul's problem was. Some say it was a stomach condition. It could have been a lot of different things. But you see what he's doing instead of just saying, oh, I'm a victim, because we're going to see that every week. We could have easily made that conclusion last week, that if you don't tie choices and consequences in your child's life, they come out a victim. Next week, when we talk about teaching our kids to respect authority, very much, you don't do that in your child's life. If you don't do what Romans tells us to do, then they're going to grow up in a society that says, well, you're just a victim. And I promise you, the one thing that the Christ does not invite us into is being a victim. We are victors in Christ Jesus. And that's who we are in the identity when we're identified with Christ. So, so here we are. What, what do we learn from this? Number one, Paul says, we, we learn humility. Failure teaches us humility. Remember the story of the prodigal son? In his mind, well, again, we don't know. He's kind of a teenager, maybe an older teenager. And, and in his mind, he goes, okay, Dad, life on the farm isn't super exciting. And so can you just give me what's coming to me? And I'll take that. And I'm going to do grand and glorious things. I'm going to go off to the city. I'm going to do grand and glorious things. I have ideas, Dad. I have a plan. And he goes out there and he begins to kind of work that plan. And at first it kind of seems like everything is going great because he has plenty of friends. My goodness, when you're paying for the food and the drinks, you'll have plenty of friends. I guarantee you. But then he finds himself penniless. And he has nothing, and all of a sudden he can't even, you know, change the clothes. He's got these rags on. He grows out there, and he does what so many of us do when we find ourselves in failure in our own life. We try to fix it ourselves, and he tries to do that. He goes out there, and he tries to get the job. The only job that he can get is one that would have been so heinous to a Jewish young man, feeding the swine. It is the worst possible job. Because not only was it really a dirty job, but it made you spiritually unclean. You couldn't go to church. Couldn't go to the temple to worship. This is the double whammy. Luke 15, 17, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. And he came 
to his senses. He looks around, all he can see is the pig slop. It says that he longed for the very pig slop that he was feeding to the pigs, but he couldn't even have that. And he came to his senses. Failure produces humility. And what is humility? We could define it a lot of different ways. I'm going to define it the way that I define so many things in life. Humility is a proper sense of the truth about man and the truth about God. He found in that moment, Luke 15, 17, as he looks down at the pigs and he desires to eat the pig's life, he found out the truth about himself. Hey, I don't have it all figured out. And he figured out the truth about his father. My father's in my father's house are servants and, and they have more than enough food. One of the most humbling moments, in a good sense of humbling, in our lives is when we figure out the truth about ourselves and the truth about our Father. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. We want our children to fly high. We want them to have great success. But we also want our our children to be humble. Don't we? Do you want your child to be that kid? Everybody knows who that kid is. The kid that after he scores the touchdown or does that, gets right in the face of the other one. You know, does the little dance, this or whatever. I mean, we want our kid to score the touchdown. Do we really want the kid that gets there and, you know, kind of makes mockery of every other child because of his own eliteness and everybody else is inferior? We really don't want that kid. We want him to be successful, but without the head that comes with it. Well, biblically, if I understand this scripture, that's, that's what God's aim is too. God wants us to be successful, but he's going to define success a lot differently than you and I would define success. And his is always going to have a spiritual basis rather than just W's and, and L's, wins and losses. And so what we see here is that you know, God began to work in Paul's life. He's called him. He has him appointed. He probably, besides Christ himself, is the most outstanding person in the New Testament that we have reflected there. And yet he has this ailment. He has this predicament. He has this thorn in the flesh. He prays three times. I think it was many more than that, but three times that he was probably in concentrated, purposeful prayer. Remove this from me. And God doesn't do it. Why? Because he said, Paul, I, I need to keep you humble. Because like all humans, you have a tendency that when things are going really good, you get full of yourself. And it's only when things get bad that you kind of come running back to me. Now, now we're not like that, though, are we? I mean, not so much that we get this braggadocious, but I mean, have you ever noticed this great characteristic about yourself that you share with all the rest of humanity? That when things are going good in your life, that God is to help those children in Africa that were on that commercial. Because I am steering my own ship over here. God, you know, I'm I'm doing okay. Verse 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Three times. Now, now why are we told three times? Well, why does he say that? Number one, I I think it's more than just, it wasn't just a fly-by-night prayer. I, I think it also shows history. So many lessons that we learn biblically, biblical lessons, are are learned over time. None of us are quick, quick students. We want to be, we desire to be, we want our kids to be quick students. But I promise you, so many of these lessons that even the Apostle Paul learned, he learned over time. We, We look in Philippians and he says, I have learned to become content in all things. 
He didn't say, I've always been content, no matter if I was in jail or not. He says, I've learned to do this. And it's, when he says that, I plead it three times, I think that it's showing us here kind of a linear history that's out there that we didn't really understand until we got the whole story. This past week, somebody put on Facebook, Miss Cindy put on there about Sunday dinners, and, and, and it reminded me of something. I, uh, we had a rule growing up in my house that you had to be home for Sunday dinners. And other nights, you might be able to go out, you might be able to do this, but even as a, a kind of a, an older teenager, Sunday dinners were not an option. They were going to be in the home with the family. And I hated that. And there's times I despise my parents for that. I'm going, you know how much fun is happening right now? They're, they have a football game going down, you know, down you know, the road here, and, and I'm missing the football game because I've got to be here. Now, many years down the road with, with history, I, I agreed with what Miss Cindy put in there. I would do anything. I would do anything. To have Sunday dinner with my dad one more time. Man, I didn't see that as a 17-year-old, a 20-year-old, maybe not a 22-year-old. But man, you get on the other side of that apex of life, and all of a sudden, you, you lose a mom or a dad or this, and all of a sudden, you learn lessons. That's what Paul's saying here. I, I really think this three times, I don't think there's anything magical about the three. I think what God's trying to show us is that this was something that, that Paul was learning, that he pleaded. Humility is, is ultimately uh, not one of those lessons that we learned the first time. We really don't master humility because of one loss. You know what human nature is when we have a loss, when we're used to winning and all of a sudden we have a loss? It's not my fault. What? It's the ref. I mean, how many, how many times have I already heard this morning, well, it would have, the game would have never been that close if the ref would have got it right. You know, that's our natural, folks, we, every one of us do that. And especially if it's our kid out there on the, you know, the baseball diamond or on the basketball court or on the football field. It's like, I cannot believe, how did that guy miss that? You know, it was so obvious that they fouled my son and they didn't call it. That's why humility is not an instantaneous lesson. It's to be taught over time. That's the first lesson. The second thing that we see here is not only does failure teach us humility, it teaches us grace. Look at what Paul goes on to say in verse 9 after his confession, that he urgently has prayed, he's pleaded, a very strong word, he's pleaded for this to be removed. Look at verse 9. But he said to me, God has said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul's confession is that through this unwanted thorn, he learned a great truth about grace. God's grace is sufficient. When you think you're sufficient in and of yourself, when, when you've got nothing but W's and, and no L's here, it's one of those things It's easy to say, well, okay, I, I'm, I'm the answer to my problem here. If, if the game gets close, I just have to try harder. No, it's when we get those losses that we begin to say, okay, my, my goodness, I'm trying as hard as I can. I'm still losing on some of these things. And we find only then this wonderful story about grace 
first and foremost about grace spiritually, but, but even in our own lives. That, that word sufficient there is a kind of a cool word in the Greek. It means, uh, first of all, to be content, but, but also it has this word picture of building a wall, raising a wall. And so what Paul's saying is, okay, what I've found, that even though I still have this thorn in the flesh, I've pleaded three times for it to be removed. He hasn't removed it, but he's taught me to be content. He's raised a wall of sufficiency around me. Now, Ellen, you're, you're one of our artists, and you like those word pictures. Isn't that a cool picture? I mean, can you not see a painting from that coming out of uh, your artistic impressions? Not just, okay, I'm content, but man, there's a wall. He's raised a wall. And even though I still have this thorn, he's sufficient. He's put a wall around me. You see, the lesson our children need to learn about God's grace is that it's sufficient for saving us, but also sufficient for sustaining us. God's grace, yes, instantaneous. When we trust the work of Christ, instantaneous saves us. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. But don't think that that was the end of God's grace. You and I would not even be here this morning without God's grace. God's grace for the believer is that it's a sustaining grace. Why? Because it rains on the just and the unjust. Bad things happen to even people that go to church. Bad things happen even to people that love Jesus really well. And so we need not only saving grace, we need sustaining grace. Unfortunately, it's a lesson learned most of the time in the midst of failure. See, that's what Paul meant. If you go back and if you want the theological basis, that Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 7, when he's basically saying, hey, look, you know why we have these Ten Commandments and you know why we have the law? It wasn't just that God is sitting up there and going, okay, man, I really am going to freak these people out. I'm going to give them all these laws so that they just write, go this straight and narrow. No, he says, I want you to see that in yourself you can't... Walk the straight and narrow. But look what Paul wrote, the same Paul in Romans 3.20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, in God's sight, since through the law uh, we come to knowledge of sin. Verse 7 of chapter 7. What shall we say then, that the law was sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known my sin. I would not have known that what it is to covet if the law had not said, thou shalt not covet. Do you see the case that Paul's making? He says your very failure, your, only, your, your very inability to keep the law drives you where? Back to yourself? Or does it drive you to the cross? That's what we need to teach our kids. Not, not that you can master this, but that there's going to be some things in life that you, you just not be able to master Save God's grace. And in that failure, it's not failure as the world would say it. No, if you run to the cross, that failure actually becomes a victory. We need a Savior. In that same Romans chapter 3, he said, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. But verse 24 goes right there with it. We, we kind of know verse 23, but verse 24 says, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. See, as much as we need it saving grace to save us, to bring us into the family of God, we need sustaining grace just to make it through life, guys. 
God's sustaining grace. Uh, maybe one of the last questions for the morning. Uh, we got to go. Um, which is better, for God to remove the thorn or for God to give you a, a, a contentment with the thorn? I don't like the answer to that. Do you? Anybody like the answer to that? I mean, I know what we want. God, remove the thorn. That's why he pleaded three times, remove the thorn, remove the failure, the difficulty from my life. But which one is really more a sign that God is this awesome God? Not just that he can remove the thorn, but, but that the, with the thorn there, I can give you a contentment. Let me quickly hit this last one. Uh, that's what he's saying there in verse uh, 9. He says, but he said to me, but. I, I love when that word but and the word therefore is in the scripture. Because one is, okay, this is how we think, but here's what God did, and here's where he sent us. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient. You, my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, here's our marching orders. I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. How many of you have graduated with that degree yet? I haven't. Are you boasting the more gladly over your weaknesses? I'm not there yet. I'm so glad this is a learning process because I'm still trying to learn that to say, okay, I am content. And that's where Paul came back in Philippians 4. I've learned to be content. I'm not there yet. But that's what he's teaching. He's teaching humility. He's teaching grace. Last, very quickly, because we need to go, is he uh, teaches us dependence. He teaches us that uh, life without him, uh, we are not sufficient in and ourselves. And in one way, I know that every parenting motive is to produce what? Independent child. Right? I mean, do you want them coming back and living at 40 and 50 and 60? Surprise! Kids, come on in. Grandma and granddad, this is our new house. I mean, I know sometimes life kind of brings that about, but, you know, we want to raise independent kids but please do not raise kids that are independent from the grace, the need to run to the cross on a daily basis and and have union with Christ. Raise kids that are independent, but that are still dependent on the grace that saved them and the grace that sustains them. It's kind of hard. Do you see how these things are kind of you know, sometimes polar opposites that have, were pulled in two different directions. This is tough, guys. But I promise you, that is a lesson that will be learned. There will be that humbling moment. And I would rather have my children learn that humbling moment at 8 and 12 and 13, just like we said last week, because the costs are much more minimal than at 28 and 33 and 35. When it's not just, oh, this boy doesn't like me anymore. No, it's the end of a marriage. It's uh, getting fired from the job. It's, it's how do I pay my mortgage? The stake is a lot higher at 33 and 35 than at 8 and 9. We're going to end as we did last week. Is it too late? Is it too late? Some of you have preschoolers. Man, you can just go and, and put this right into force. Some of you have teenagers. You can put it right into force. Some of you have adult children. Is it too late? No. As a parent, it's never too late to bring our kids back and to pray for them, to see the sufficiency of the Scripture, the sufficiency of Christ, and the sufficiency of the grace that he provides for us 
every day. You may not have that same role when your kids are in their 20s and 30s, but I promise you, it's never too late. That's what grace is all about. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you. And Father, this day, I pray that we would learn that, uh, yeah, there is a way that we think about failure in the human sense and even in a cultural sense. But Father, would you help us to grasp how to think about failure, difficulties, challenges in our lives, and especially in our children's lives, from a scriptural basis. They're, they're learning tools for you to use in our lives, not to embarrass us, not to defeat us, but to drive us back to the foot of the cross. That is where Paul said he found his strength, that in his weakness, in Christ Jesus, he found strength. Father, let us practice this. Let us live this out as parents so that we're not just telling them what they should, our children what to do, but Father, that they would see an earthly example, the scripture being lived out before them, where we would humble ourselves, we would admit it when we were wrong, Father, that we would daily confess our need for not only the saving grace that saved us, but sustaining grace. And Father, that you would continue to mature us. And Father, that we would not live as these independent people, independent from need for you, but Father, that they would see demonstrated in our lives prayer, Bible study, all these things, that we are are people that run to you for daily help and daily need. We love you and we thank you, Father, now. Father, as we close out with this song, Father, I pray that we just reflect upon the precious words that we have read and that you instill them into our hearts and our minds this day. Father, equip us to be better parents, grandparents, and leading this next generation of precious Jesus followers. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.